ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. So as we started last week, we saw that 1 Timothy is one of three letters that we refer to as the pastoral epistles. Paul wrote these three letters at the end of his life. They're the last three things that we're aware of that he wrote. He wrote two letters to Timothy and then one letter to Titus. And if you remember the timing of that, he wrote 1 Timothy to Timothy shortly after he was released from prison. At the end of the book of Acts, we see that Paul ends up in prison. He spends two years in prison, but he was released. That was his first imprisonment. And so after he had been released, he wrote to Timothy this letter. He also wrote to Titus probably about the same time. And then as we also learned last week, there was a period of time, we don't know how long, but a couple of years, he wrote Second Timothy while he was in prison the second time, shortly before he died. When he was in prison the second time there, um, his life was taken. He wrote Timothy from prison there. And so he refers to him as the pastoral epistles. It's where he shares his heart to Timothy and to Titus, giving them instructions on how to shepherd and manage the local church. And so that's what the focus is on these three letters, is what to do with the local church. How do we shepherd it? How do we manage it? And he covers everything from false teaching to um, behavior of men and women within the church to um, how to structure the church when it comes to governance with elders and deacons. So all of that is covered in this book. And as we started last week, we just looked at the Apostle Paul in just the one verse on how Paul understood who he was and identified himself by his relationship and his ministry to Christ. And so today we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 7, where he's going to introduce us to Timothy, the one that he's writing to, but then he's also going to tackle the hard issue of false teaching. It's the primary reason why he left Timothy at Ephesus. So let's go ahead and we're going to read verses 1 and 2, just to get ourselves started here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was one of his most trusted and reliable co-workers. Let's give a little bit of background on Timothy to start with. Paul first met Timothy when he went to a place called Derby and Lystra, two small cities. He was already a believer when Paul met him. He was raised by his mother and his grandmother, who were both faithful Jews. He had a Greek father who, as far as we know, was not saved. But Timothy learned his faith, Paul says in this letter, from his grandmother and from his mother. They had taught him the word of God from infancy, and as a result, Timothy had been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And by the time Paul met him, he was already a man with a good reputation in Lystra and Derby among the church. In fact, Paul was so impressed with Timothy that he decided to take Timothy along on his missionary journeys with him. And he stayed with Timothy, or I'm sorry, he stayed with Paul all the way until the end of Paul's life. Imagine that, how impressive this young man must have been to Paul to meet him on this first trip to Lystra and Derby and to be so impressed that he takes him along to minister alongside him. Over the course of their travels and working together, they developed this um, father and son-like relationship. In fact, when you look at what he says here in verse 2, to Timothy, 
my true child in the faith. Paul mentions a couple of other things in this regard. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. He uses a very similar phrase to Timothy, my beloved son, in the introduction to 2 Timothy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, again, something very similar as he describes Timothy to the Corinthians. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Paul looked at Timothy as a spiritual child who was faithful, committed not just to Christ, but also committed to him. Now we know Timothy took this relationship to heart because he served Paul like a child would a parent. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the Philippians. He's not able to be there with them. He hopes to come to them. But look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Now, now look at this. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will come shortly. Look at the way that he talks about Timothy there. Nobody quite of kindred spirit with him. All others have this self-interest and motives in mind. Now, there are others like Epaphroditus, who he mentions here, and Silas and Barnabas that ministered alongside Paul. He's not disparaging them by saying no one else. He's referring to, by far, many within the church that were leading for improper motives and governing for improper motives. He'll mention some of those in First Timothy here. But Timothy held a very special place in Paul's heart because he shared a kindred spirit with him. And so what we learn here from Paul is that as Paul is trying to get to Philippi, he wants to send Timothy in his, in his stead so that Timothy can care for them just as Paul would care for them. And he knows that Paul would do that. He knows that, that, I'm sorry, that Timothy could do that. That Timothy could be trusted to care for them just as he would himself. What's interesting is that Timothy is mentioned in all of Paul's letters except for two. There's only two that he doesn't mention Timothy. He was an important person with him. In fact, he even spent time in prison as a result of his ministry alongside Paul. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 23 mentions a time when Timothy had to be released from prison. So he paid the price for serving alongside Paul. As far as we know, Paul's final letter before he was executed was 2 Timothy. So the last thing that he wrote went to this true child in the Lord, Timothy. That says a lot when the last letter you write is to a specific individual. And it was Timothy. So that's precisely why, when we come to to 1 Timothy here, that's precisely why Paul chose Timothy for a very specific task at Ephesus. And we're going to learn about that now. Paul entrusted Timothy with protecting the church at Ephesus from false teaching. 
That was his primary responsibility there. There are other responsibilities, establishing elders and deacons and putting things in order in terms of proper behavior and teaching and instructing. But one of the primary reasons, if not the primary reason, that Paul left Timothy at Ephesus was to prevent the teaching of false doctrine. Look at verse 3 and we'll just read 3 and 4. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. It's not certain when Paul gave this charge to Timothy, because the book of Acts doesn't record exactly when this happens, but it's likely that when Paul was released from prison in Rome, that he took Timothy and he went back to Ephesus for a short period of time. It's not recorded anywhere, but the fact that Paul says that I left you there seems to suggest that he and Timothy might have gone back to Ephesus for a short period of time. Paul left to go on to Macedonia, and he left Timothy there in Ephesus, he says here, to protect the church from false teaching. The language of verse 3 suggests that Paul and Timothy went there again after He was released from prison. What's interesting here is, look at how he says this. So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Let's see if we can figure out who these men are that he's referring to. Your version might read certain persons, and that's because it's in the masculine plural here, which can be rendered as persons or specifically men. The New American Standard, which I just read from, translates it as men. We don't know if it was just men or if it included women. There's some indication that there might have been some women in places like Ephesus that were involved with, with false teaching. It's clear because Paul has to address some of this a little bit later in chapter 2. We don't know if the women were teaching false things, but we know that the women were teaching and Paul had some concerns about what was happening there. So... You know, is it men? Is it women? It's unclear. What we do know for sure is that Paul mentions at least three men that we know were teaching false doctrine. Now, this is something Paul actually warned the Ephesians about. Turn to Ephesians chapter, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul was sailing by Ephesus. He didn't want to stop in Ephesus because he needed to get to Jerusalem. But he wanted to see the Ephesian elders. Now remember, Paul had spent three years at Ephesus. He knew Ephesus really well. He knew the church there really well. And so on this trip that he was making back to Jerusalem at one point, he was sailing by Ephesus and he wanted to see the elders there, the men that he had spent three years alongside. And he had a very specific warning for them. Acts chapter 20, jump down into verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Paul didn't think at this point that he would see them again. It appears that he might have again after he was released from prison. But at this point he didn't know that he would. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard yourselves. And for all the flock... Now remember, he's telling this to the elders at Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves people right from within your own church 
will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So what was Paul warning them about? He was warning the elders at Ephesus that a time would come when some of their own would begin to teach things that were wrong, would lead people astray, things that were perverse. So Paul told them, be on guard. And here we are in 1 Timothy, with Paul telling Timothy, it's happened, Timothy, and you need to put a stop to it. The fact that Paul refers to certain persons here means that he's had particular people in mind. And I mentioned he, he refers to three of them. Hymenaeus was one, Alexander, who was a coppersmith, was a second, and then there's another individual mentioned in Titus, Philetus. So we know of at least three of the men within the church at Ephesus and Crete that were teaching false things. We'll touch base on them at a later passage. We'll get some more specifics on these individuals, not just what they were teaching, but who they were. I can give you a real quick paraphrase here. Their false teaching included things like rejecting the resurrection, blasphemy, saying things untrue about God, opposing the teachings of Paul, doing harm to Paul. He even says that they did harm to him, meaning they hurt his ministry, and then ultimately upsetting the faith of believers, teaching them things that upset their faith like an apple cart, knocking it over. So Paul was rightly concerned about what was happening at Ephesus. And so he left Timothy there, He mentions two very specific things as it relates to this. The first was putting an end to what the men were teaching. A more literal translation of verse 3 there, yours probably says um, that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. The tense of the Greek word that Paul uses there implies that it was already happening and he was to stop it. So another way to render this would be so that you may command certain men to stop teaching different things. Doctrines. Let's go ahead and break that down. That word instruction there is the word for command. Many translations use the word instruct, but Paul basically is saying, I'm commanding. Command these men to stop teaching. The word different doctrine then. What do we do with that? Different from what? Well, Paul was referring to doctrines that were different than the gospel, things that he had shared. We'll see in a moment that the false teachers at Ephesus were teaching all kinds of things. The glorious gospel of the blessed God, which Paul or which I, Paul, have been entrusted, was not one of them. They were teaching things contrary to the glorious gospel, as Paul says in verse 11. It means they were teaching another means of salvation. Chapter 6, verse 3, they were also teaching things that did not agree with sound words. Those of the Lord Jesus Christ with the doctrine conforming to godliness. And so Paul gives us an idea that these men were teaching things contrary to the gospel, contrary to the means of salvation, contrary to the words of Jesus Christ himself. We'll also learn in a little bit here that these men were teaching things that revolved around mythical tales, stories, forms of legalism based on the Old Testament law, both of which are contrary to the gospel and the word of God. So Paul said, we need to put an end to it. Stop these men from teaching such things. The second thing Paul charged Timothy with was calling these men to stop paying attention themselves to myths 
and endless genealogies. Look at verse 4 again. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. So what he basically does here is, Paul says, Timothy, there's two things I need you to do. Stop these men from teaching things like this. And second, stop them from paying attention to it themselves. They go hand in hand. But it wasn't enough to just say, tell these men to stop teaching it. But confront these men about their own beliefs and them paying attention to these things and engrossing themselves in these things. What are these myths and endless genealogies? We're not really sure. But in Titus chapter 1, verse 14, Paul refers to them as Jewish myths. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul describes such things as godless or profane myths fit only for old women. I'll let you guys chew on that for a bit. That was an idiom of of the day. So these were silly tales and stories that had no basis in history or fact. In fact, it's my belief that probably what was happening, there's, you, you may have heard the terms um, apocrypha or pseudoepigrapha. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and between the Old and the New Testament, there's another section that they include in the Bible that is referred to as apocrypha or pseudoepigrapha. They're other writings that don't have any basis in, in um, historical reality, if I can say it that way. Um, there's things like the Gospel of Thomas and others. They're writings by people, but many of them were claimed to have been written by one person when they really weren't. They were written under the guise of somebody else. And there's not a whole lot of historical fact to what we can find in some of those things. There's also a lot of things within those writings, the Apocrypha and the Pseudopigrapha, that run contrary to what you find in the scriptures. There's also a lot of fanciful stories and, and things in there about Jesus. And so a lot of it's just sort of made up stuff. That's the reason why the church never considered it as the, the scriptures or the word of God. That's also why even the Catholic Church recognizes there's something different about it than the Old and the New Testament that we know is truly fully inspired. So they even put it in its own section within, within their Bible. It's likely because we know that some of that material was written before Christ and even after Christ during that first century. And so it might be that if we turned and started reading that stuff, we might see some of the very same myths and stories and weird things that they were teaching back then because they showed up in this, these extra writings. Don't know for sure. That's my conviction that that's probably what was taking place. But what's interesting here is this phrase, pay attention, is the, is the idea of devoting oneself to it, engrossing oneself in it. And that's what these men were doing. They were enamored by these myths and these stories. Now, there's also some thought that these myths and these stories might have had to do with Old Testament characters that we don't know much about, but they had sort of made up stories about them. Again, we're not really sure, but that's what these men were getting involved with. You know what this reminds me of? When I was in seminary, there was this young Christian man that I had met, and uh, he was at the same gym that I had been working out at, And he knew I was in seminary, so he pulled me aside one day and he started asking me about Catholicism because he had been born and raised in a a Christian home. Um, I think he even went to Grace College for a short period of time, but he had dropped out. So here he was working in the city and he was working out at this gym. And so he had become enamored with Catholic theology. And he was going to the local library and every day would spend hours reading through the writings, not of the scriptures, 
but of writings about Catholic theology and writings about Catholic saints and writing about many of the external things, even to the Catholic Church, that were all somewhat related. And he began to be engrossed in it. And so he began to challenge me on some theological issues, like salvation by grace, through faith, rather than salvation through the sacraments. And he found himself moving towards Catholic theology based on much of this stuff. But none of it had to do with him studying the word, but instead studying all these other writings. And so when we would talk, I would challenge him. I'm like, look, why don't we spend time studying the scriptures instead of all this other stuff? But he would constantly go to the other stuff. And when I would say, but that's other stuff. Let's see what the word says. And he would go to the other stuff. He was just engrossed in it. And as a result, was, all, was just enamored with it. And saw a lot of the, the saints and others, to be real honest, almost on the same level as he saw Jesus Christ. And it took him from his well-grounded faith in Christ, based on God's grace and his faith, to, I'm saved now through performing the sacraments in the Catholic Church. And it all started with becoming engrossed, devoted to paying attention to all of these mythical things. And that's exactly what these teachers were doing. And so Paul says, stop them from teaching it, Timothy, and stop them from paying attention to it. Now, I'll be real frank, you can't really, you can stop somebody from teaching something, you kick them out of the pulpit. It's a little harder to stop them from paying attention to stuff. And so, isn't talking about strong-arming him here. He's probably talking about one-on-one confrontation, one-on-one challenging, talking, because elsewhere he tells Timothy to do that with grace, okay? To do it with grace, hopefully that they might repent of what they're doing. And so again, he's not talking about strong-arming them. You prevent them from believing, Timothy. No, he's, Timothy, approach him, talk to him, be gracious to him, but challenge them on this. But you might put an end to them being enamored with this stuff. What Paul does next, and he, he kind of goes back and forth a little bit here, because he's going to come back to the false teaching in a second, but what he does now is he contrasts what's happening with those false teachers with the teaching of the gospel and what he and Timothy are to be doing. Look at verses, the end, the end of verse 4 again, and we'll get into 4 and, four and 5 here. Nor paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Notice what he says here. Paul says that what these men were teaching led to mere speculation instead of furthering God's administration, God's redemptive plan. Mere speculation. Stuff that floated around in their head. The word for speculation is defined in a variety of ways by different Greek lexicons, including senseless or useless speculation, controversy, aimless arguing. It's another way that it's translated. One of my favorite lexicons, Dustin knows what this is, it's by two individuals, Lo and Nida, describes it as forming ideas which are unrelated to reality. Normally with a negative connotation. Yeah, I think so. In other words, stuff that originates in the mind or the imagination of a man 
that simply leads to, as Paul says a little bit later, fruitless, meaningless, or empty discussions. It reminds me of something else. There's a group called the Jesus Seminar. There's a phrase that's used within liberal circles referred to as the quest for the historical Jesus. You know, we look at the Word of God and we take it as a historical account of God's redemptive plan. We take it all as literal history. I've been reading this book um, at home, excavating Jesus, and it's uh, about, that, about that thick, and it's all about this uh, historical evidence and archaeological evidence that supports everything in the Gospels and the time surrounding Jesus. It's actually it's a little bit of a, of a heavy read, but it's a great read. Um, and so, it, you know, we take the Word of God as we look at it as it being genuine historical fact. We can trust what's written there. Well, that's not the case for a fair, fairly large segment of what would fall under the umbrella of Christianity. Okay? Many within Christianity, and I use that term loosely, don't take the Word of God at face value as historical fact. And so there's a group, refer to, refer to themselves as the Jesus Seminar, and their job is to determine what parts of the Gospel are historically accurate and which ones are not, including what words Jesus really did say. So you take that red-letter Bible you have, and the red doesn't, that means nothing. Because Jesus didn't really say that. That's what these guys would say. So here's how they determine it. And this is where it gets interesting. As they all get together, there's 70 of them. They fashion themselves after the translators of the Septuagint. The Old Testament translated into Greek was done by, six, or by 70 individuals. That's why it's called the Septuagint. So there's 70 in this Jesus seminar. Imagine that. Anyway, so what they do is they all get around. It used to be once a year. I don't know if they do it quite as often anymore, but they all get around in this big room together. Okay, They're all scholars now. Brilliant, brilliant men. They all get together in this big room. And they have a particular series of passages that they're going to look over. And it's, it's all sent out ahead of time, so they can study those passages ahead of time. And they're all from the Gospels. And then they hand out colored beads. So everybody gets colored beads. And I don't remember at this point, red, black, yellow, green, I think. Okay, They all get these colored beads. And then what they do is they vote with the colored beads. So they'll say, this is the passage, and this is what the you know, Gospel of Luke says in this particular passage. It says this. And then they get to vote on whether or not Jesus said that. And they put the colored beads in, and they pass around a bowl, and if you believe that's literally historically accurate, and Jesus said that exactly as it's written in Luke, you throw your green bead in. If you're not really sure, you throw your yellow bead in. And then, I don't, again, on all the colors, but I think the last one was black or something. If you're absolutely convinced that what that says has no historical accuracy, and Jesus never said that, then you throw in the black bead. And after everybody throws in their beads, you count the beads. And if there's more black beads than there are green beads, Jesus didn't say it. Fruitless discussions. Meaningless, fruitless discussions. That's all that is. Because it's all based on their imagination. They don't like it, so Jesus didn't say it. Of course Jesus wouldn't say that. He would have said something else. That's the way the game is played. And so for that reason, Paul says these men, because they're paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, what they're doing gives rise to mere speculation, imagination, whatever's in their head. And it doesn't, he says, further 
the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, in contrast to that, by putting an end to the false teaching and by putting an end to these mindless, empty speculations and paying attention to things like these myths and endless genealogies, Paul says that his goal and Timothy's goal was love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul says that's his goal. The goal of these men was to engage in fruitless conversations, meaningless speculation. It's amazing how that stuff can captivate us. But Paul says our goal... The goal of our command is a certain kind of love. And it's a love that is based on a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, Paul doesn't really tell us the object of this love. Is this love for God, love for others? Probably because what Paul's talking about is the overarching principle of love that's supposed to guide Christian life, ministry, and relationship. And so he's just talking about love that comes from knowing Christ. We're to love God, love one another, love good, we're to love our enemies. Christians are to have a very disposition of love. It should define our thoughts and our words and our actions. And how does that come about? It comes about through sound teaching of the Word of God. As you understand who God is, as you understand who Jesus Christ is, as we learn to live like Him, we'll express the same love that He and God have for us. And so Paul says that their goal is to foster this kind of love. Now, he gives three sources for this kind of love. The first one is a pure heart, if you look at verse 5 again. A pure heart. So this kind of love overflows from a pure heart. A pure heart is one that's been cleansed from sin. Paul says in Romans 2.29, it's a heart that has been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy says that it's a heart that flees youthful lusts and pursues righteousness, faith, love, peace. That's what a pure heart does. And so one of Paul's goals with Timothy is to teach in a way that fosters this pure heart. He goes on and he says the kind of love he's talking about here overflows from a good conscience. That means morally good conscience. A conscience is a moral compass that God gives to each human being to help us determine good from bad, right from wrong. Unfortunately, the problem is that the conscience can be seared, the Bible says. It can be rejected when we go against what our conscience is telling us to do. Um, It can be defiled, Paul says in Titus, meaning corrupt. So the conscience isn't perfect, especially when we don't know Christ still has its value and its place because even the unsaved oftentimes know right from wrong. The conscience can still work even in the unsaved but work imperfect or imperfectly at times. But according to Hebrews chapter 13, the conscience that is morally good is one that can cause us to want to conduct ourselves honorably in the right way in all things. And so what God's word does, in fact if we get into Psalm chapter 19 in the Old Testament, it tells us that it can make us wise, it can convict the heart And so God's word has this ability to take that wounded conscience we have and fix it. In fact, a pastor friend of mine years ago did a series called Preaching the Thoughts of Christ. We can think like Jesus when we allow the word of God to shape our thinking. And that starts with our conscience. 
So we can't fix our own conscience, but the Word of God, when we accept what it says, can take that wounded conscience and now make it function like it's supposed to. And again, according to the author of Hebrews, when our conscience is good, when we allow God's Word to do that, it can cause us to behave honorably, to do the right thing. I'm sure you probably have examples from your own life where you've done something. Maybe you offended somebody. Maybe you did something you shouldn't have, shouldn't have offended God and your conscience starts to bother you. And as a result of that, you begin to realize, you know, I need to do something about that. And maybe it's simply correcting the sin. Maybe it's approaching the individual you've offended. Maybe it's saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That's your conscience at work. And so Paul says that one of the goals that he, that he and Timothy have with their teaching was that they wanted to foster a kind of love that would come from that kind of conscience. A good conscience. And that doesn't happen without the Word of God. The last thing he says here is that this kind of love overflows from a sincere faith. best way to say that is a sincere faith is one that is genuine. It's real. You know, there's an awful lot of people that will say, I'm a believer and don't act like it. You know, just because somebody says... I'm a Christian. Doesn't mean that they genuinely are. In fact, there are many that show up on a Sunday morning for church and you see nothing about that relationship for the rest of the week. It's not genuine. It's not sincere when it's not lived out on a regular basis. When you, when you say, I love Jesus, but then you reject what Jesus taught and what Jesus believed... Your faith is not sincere. It's not genuine. It's not real. You know, it's like fool's gold. Just because it's all shiny and looking good doesn't mean that it's real. And so Paul says that their teaching, the goal of their teaching is to foster a kind of love that grows out of this pure heart, this good conscience, and this sincere faith. Sound teaching is critical for that because those things don't happen without it. All three of these, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a genuine faith, obviously begin with faith in Jesus Christ. However, they grow and they mature through sound teaching, ultimately resulting in love. I became convinced years ago, in large part to the guy that I call my mentor, that I have one job when I get up in this pulpit to tell you what this says. Not my words, not my speculation, to tell you what this says pastor told me one time, when you get up in the pulpit, don't tell me what you think. Tell me, thus saith the Lord. That's why we teach here, verse by verse, book by book, because our only job is to fill you with what God said, so that when you leave, you can have the kind of love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, there are many out there who try to teach that through other means. They'll get up in the pulpit on a Sunday morning and they'll wax on eloquently, barely opening the Word of God to you, or proof texting, dropping a verse here, a verse there, that you can't even have time to look up and figure out is it in context. Thinking they're fostering something, they're telling you how you're to live or what you should do, and much of it is filled with pop psychology and worldly ideas. The bookstores are filled with that kind of self-help stuff. Paul says it's false teaching. We're going to see a little bit later on that Paul calls on Timothy. He says, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Something very specific he had in mind there. What's here? Now, Paul says that the false teachers had actually strayed from these things. Look at what he says in verses 6 through 11. 
For some men, these false teachers, straying from these things, what things? They didn't have a pure heart, they didn't have a good conscience, and they didn't have sincere faith. Which means that their teaching was not motivated to produce love. So he says, they've they've strayed from these things. And they've turned aside to fruitless discussions. They want to be teachers of the law, that's the Old Testament law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing that the the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That is a mouthful. What Paul's basically doing here is some of these men fancied themselves as knowledgeable and scholars in the Old Testament law and were teaching that to the believers at Corinth. But they were essentially teaching a works-based salvation. They were perverting the Old Testament and its intention and trying to get these individuals to live their lives according to the law. Now you remember, Paul refers to them elsewhere as Judaizers. These were Jewish folks. I don't know if these men were Jewish or not, but they were Jewish folks that would follow Paul as he would go to a new area and lead people to Christ and establish churches there. They would come after him and say, well, no, what Paul's saying is only part of the truth. You need to follow the law now. You have to be circumcised. You can't eat certain foods. You've got to perform all these rituals. You've got to only worship on Saturday. You can't worship on Sunday. All these rules and regulations because you can't be saved without it. Paul is a fool to say that there's only grace through faith that saves you. You need all these other things. We saw that in the book of Acts when we studied it. Where they even went to Jerusalem and talked to the apostles and said, what do we do with this? And their response, the apostles said, no, we can't put a burden like that on these people because that's not how we were saved. As Jews, we didn't get saved by obeying the law. We got saved by faith through Grace, or by by grace through faith. And so somehow these men were teaching that very thing and notice that Paul says, they make these confident assertions, but they don't understand what they're saying. I will, I almost say this to my, my shame in some respects. I almost get some comic relief sometimes out of watching some of today's false teachers. It's, terrible what they do but when I hear them quoting passages of scripture out of context and not understanding what it means it almost becomes comical because it's clearly evident they have no clue what they're talking about absolutely no clue and yet they make confident assertions believing what they're teaching and so Paul says that's what these men were doing They fancied themselves as teachers of the law, but they had no clue what they were talking about. We don't know, again, if these guys were Judaizers. All we know is that they were teaching false doctrine, leading the people astray. Now, just to kind of touch base on this, what is Paul's point here about the law? He says the law is good. And it is good. We preach a lot from the Old Testament here. Why? Because Paul says that it was a tutor designed to lead us to Christ. It wasn't... The law was written so that it might establish right from wrong, good from bad. The Old Testament tells us what God's standards are. 
But God never intended that by obeying that, which nobody can do, aside from Christ, that it would, would save us. That's why Christ had to come. Only Christ could accomplish all of the rules and regulations in the Old Testament. We rely on what Christ did for us. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through 29. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. Why? Because it's a judicial document. It says, this is what's wrong. Here's the penalties for doing wrong. So Paul says, we were kept under custody to the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Not justified by the law. It was a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith, not by the law. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor. For you are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We don't need the Old Testament law to save us. What the Old Testament law does for us today is it simply continues to teach us about God. But Christ, it pointed to Christ that he might save us through faith. And so Paul said what these men were teaching didn't do that. And they had no clue what they were talking about. I would say the same thing about those, I won't mention names here, who recently have been saying we should disassociate ourselves from the Old Testament. There's nothing in the Old Testament of value to us anymore. It's two-thirds of our Bible, folks. There's a lot we can learn. In fact, you know in this church, as we've studied portions of the Old Testament, they all reflect Christ. They all reflect Christ. Which is why we study the Old Testament. But we know that we're not bound by the laws and the regulations of the Old Testament. We know that it was merely a way to point us to Jesus Christ. And these teachers had forgotten that. So they were teaching myths and weird genealogies and all kinds of mystic stuff when it came to that. They were teaching the Old Testament laws and means of salvation. These folks were false teachers. They were the ones that Paul said to the Ephesians back in Acts 20, wolves in sheep's clothing from within your own midst. So what do we do with all of this? Let me give you a couple of, or a few takeaways from this. First, we need to keep watchful. False teachers exist. They exist inside and outside of our church walls. They existed during Paul's day, and they exist here in our day today. In fact, the Holy Spirit warned that in later times, this exact thing would happen. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, we're there, folks, Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Paul, or I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit warned Paul and Timothy, a time's going to come where they're not going to tolerate sound teaching. Jesus even warned the same thing in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Twice in that passage, he says that people will fall away from the truth. Twice he says that. Jesus himself warned about it. So the first thing is we need to keep our eyes open. We need to recognize the wolves in sheep's clothing. They exist. I 
Just in my 40-some years of being a Christian, I've seen an escalation in that. Within the evangelical church today, there's many churches that, while they may not be blatantly teaching false doctrine, they're certainly not teaching the word. And as a result, much of what they teach is not necessarily biblical. And it's a fine line sometimes. You know, when somebody's out there promoting stuff that comes more from pop psychology than the word of God or their own imagination, it's not healthy, it's not good. And it would fit into that category of false teaching, though maybe not blatantly, but we have to keep our eyes open. Whenever somebody recommends a book to me, they say, you ought to read this book, it's a great book. The first thing I do is I figure out who the author is and I look at how the author handles scripture. The second thing I do is look at the book and figure out how much scripture he's using to make his point in the book. Because if it's void of that, I'm not interested in reading it. I don't want to put, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm saying I don't want to have to put the energy into saying, well, if you couldn't document where you got this from, I don't want to have to go figure it out. Tell me where it came from so I can evaluate it. Take me into the Word so that I can evaluate what you're doing. Okay? So we need to, first off, be aware and be watchful. Second, anything that doesn't align with the Gospel or align with the Word of God does not further God's redemptive plan. So much of the teaching today that we find in evangelical churches, while again may not be blatantly false, but doesn't further the administration of God's redemptive plan. It doesn't. Much of it is narcissistic. Much of it is focused on me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. What's taught should focus me on him. And yet much of what we find in our churches today is fairly light. And it doesn't really further the gospel. A lot of other things are, are taught. It's funny, my, my sister Joni was... Um, complaining about a pastor they had gotten who was one of Andy Stanley's disciples and he had come out to their church. He ultimately, in many respects, really hurt the church in a big way. He wouldn't teach from the Word. And when the church began to confront him and say, why don't you spend more time in the Word? His response was, it's not my responsibility. What kind of pastor would, would do that? Well, Joni mentioned he never uses his Bible, never uses his Bible, never uses his Bible when he teaches. He would quote passages here and there. Well, so I went online and I watched one of his videos one time. I think I shared this with Dustin. And what I saw, and I, I, had a, I took a screen capture of it and sent it back to her. He had his iPad. He was preaching from his iPad, which I don't have a problem preaching from an iPad. But his iPad was propped up on his Bible. So I took a screenshot and I sent it to my sister and I said, wait a minute, he uses his Bible when he preaches? He props up his iPad with it. Not once in that sermon did he open his Bible. And I think I only heard him once or twice use the passage of Scripture don't mean to judge him. I'm trying to be a little funny here. But the reality of it is that if it doesn't align with the gospel or the word of God, it does not further God's program for the gospel. It really doesn't. What does? First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says that God has granted us everything, it says, everything we need for life and godliness and a knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what's written here. That furthers God's plan. Why? It gives us everything we need for life and godliness, Peter says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote that the word of God is God-breathed and profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness. So that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped, for every good work. 
What that means is that God gave us everything we need to teach us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. It's all there. Which means that any teaching that doesn't come from this does not further God's plan to teach us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. Third takeaway, and I'll finish with this. Paul gave us some clues as to what we should look for to identify these false teachers. And it's just a small list here. There are other places where he gives us more, but they teach strange doctrines, things that are different than the gospel. They devote themselves to myths and to fables and things that don't align with the word of God. Their teaching will give rise to speculation and meaningless discussions and debate rather than promoting love from a pure heart, a good conscience, or a sincere faith. I've had many debates with pastors in my lifetime, sometimes over things that have nothing to do with the Word and to try to get them into the Word to debate it, and they don't want to open the Word to debate it. And I find those mind-numbing sometimes. It's based on speculation. Like the false teachers at Ephesus, some may teach a means of salvation that's different than what the Word describes, or a different means of spiritual growth. When you get into the whole spiritual formation movement and fosters disciplines of having to do all these things, fast or meditate, all these things that they say, these will help you grow, none of which can be grounded very well in the scriptures. We're told to look out for those things. When you see legalism, teaching legalism as a means of salvation, you must do A, B, and C to be saved or be accepted by God, rather than teaching grace through faith. A final clue that Paul mentions here is these false teachers don't have a sound understanding of God's word. If they cannot open up the word of God and exposit it, that ought to be a red flag. If they can't answer a question by saying, well, the Bible says this or the Bible says that, if they have to turn to some other source. If they get up in the pulpit and what they do is they quote a lot of other scholars and don't quote the word, that ought to be a red flag. So again, these are just some of the things that Paul warned us about. We'll continue on in our study next week. But uh, it's a challenge for us, folks. There are wolves in sheep's clothing that we're warned about. They existed in Paul's day. They exist in our day today. And we're told that they're going to continue to get worse.